Welcome to Fellow Fellow, a new podcast from Harvard Kennedy School's Technology and Public Purpose Project. I'm your host, Mark Lerner, and I'm a fellow at the Tech Project. In this podcast, I interview my fellow fellows about their research and perspectives on some of the most interesting challenges at the intersection of technology and society. Welcome to another episode of Fellow Fellow. I'm really excited about this one. Today I'm joined by Jake Taylor, another fellow fellow of mine at the Tech and Public Purpose Project. Uh, Jake Taylor has been doing research in quantum information science and quantum computing for the past two decades, most recently at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He also spent the last three years as the first assistant director for quantum information science at the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy. In his research as a TAP fellow, Jake is looking into how the lessons learned in implementing science and tech policy for his home emerging field, quantum, can enable public purpose in other areas using this model of a public purpose consortium. Jake, really, really happy to have you here and to get this conversation started. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Uh, Could you maybe kick us off by just diving into a little bit more about your project here at the, your research here at the TAP project? The TAP project, for those who aren't familiar with it, is looking at the question of how public purpose the benefit to the public that technology can bring can actually be realized. And at the same time, how we can possibly mitigate or reduce some of the harms that technology can bring. Mm -hmm. And I've been working for a long time in an area of quantum computing where it's clear that there are some real opportunities and also some real risks to our infrastructure and to the actions that we take, particularly in the cybersecurity space. Mm-hmm. And so I've been really intrigued by the threads between these sort of more security and economic growth oriented risks that you run into in a very sort of physics heavy, very tough tech heavy field mm-hmm. and some other areas of emerging technology where it's not yet clear what the path to a good public outcome is. And so I'm, I'm hoping, and indeed my, my year here is really focused on understanding how we can, in other areas of emerging technology, where in particular the scientific outcomes and the research is not fully done, where we have a lot of trouble predicting the future of that in the 20-year, 30-year horizon, how in those areas we can keep a community focus around the outcomes that are the best for the citizenship of the country and of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's been driving my particular opportunity space in this area and, and also set of options that I, I look at has been this sort of dramatic change in the funding landscape over the last 30 years. Oh, interesting. And so if you look at how much funding the federal government has been putting into basic research and development since the end of the Cold War, you see that outside of the National Institutes of Health, it's been flat or somewhat negative as a percentage of GDP. Mm -hmm. So you have this funding environment in which the US government is not spending all that much money on research and development compared to historical norms. Mm -hmm. And then you have at the same time particularly in the last 10 years, a very strong uptick 
of longer term research and development at some of the world's largest corporations. And at the same time, a shift in some of the startup investor culture to start looking more deeply at problems that have long gestation times, the type of things that arise in science and technology development. So it became clear to me that the federal government going it alone in technology development is not a viable path. And at the same time, we also know, you know, what is technology, right? Technology is science applied to problems. Mm-hmm. It's a science applied to the human life in a positive way. Right. And so we know that applying at scale is something that the private sector has been able to achieve and really can work very synergistically between public good and profit motive mm-hmm. when the regulatory and community environment enables it. So I was really struck by that. And I I would add one more piece there, which is I've also been struck by how in the national security space, there's a continuous dialogue between the private sector actors and the public sector actors, where they all agree at the basic level that the national security imperative drives them. Mm -hmm. And it's the secondary motivations that distinguish them. Now, I want to contrast that with other areas in British technology where it's much less clear that there's a shared overall value system that drives that community. And so when I started thinking in quantum information science, how we can have a shared value system beyond national security that enables the best scientific outcomes and technological outcomes for society, I thought a lot about how do we build a community that bridges these different areas and how do we leverage private sector investment and federal investment so that they complement each other and so that they really enable outcomes we couldn't get to individually. Mm-hmm. That got me thinking very deeply about how the federal government and private sector actors work together under cooperative agreements and other elements. But I think that the, the key point here is that you can bring together private sector actors in a, in a wide variety of ways. Mm-hmm. And the one that I've been really interested in is the consortium, which is really like a platform in the platform economy sense. Hmm. It's a gathering place and a marketplace for ideas and sharing of development costs between companies. It really came together as an entity back in the 1980s. Congress passed several laws that enabled companies to work together and not violate antitrust statutes. Mm -hmm. And the federal government has leveraged consortia for several key topics in the past. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of, uh, what are their kinds of things? Well, there's about 350 different consortia that have been stood up oh, wow. under the auspices of this authority. Probably the most famous is Semitech, which was put together in the late 1980s to enable U.S. competitiveness in semiconductors under the threat of a Japanese domination in the semiconductor market. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a very active approach not really a basic science approach, much more of a, hey, US firms need some engineering help, they need to work together. And of course, it ended up pivoting its purpose as the Japanese economy ran into a series of troubles in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So it's not necessarily the best example of a successful consortium, but it is perhaps the most widely touted example. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of lessons that we've learned from the Semitech era. But there's others like the Semiconductor Research Corporation, which puts together the roadmap for semiconductors so that competing firms that are all trying to build the same type of computer chip can learn from each other's research 
and can fund researchers at universities right. and do shared research so that they don't have to front $100 billion of R&D individually. So this this model, the consortium model, which, I mean, I love the the path that you've taken to get here of seeing in your own field of quantum computing, quantum information science, the benefits that it brings and trying to basically find an abstraction of, you know, well, this, this type of public-private consortia really worked for your particular field. How can we expand it out? If the history shows that it's already been in use for some time now, what is the difference between what has happened and what you're envisioning? So I think one of the big changes is that some of the consortia in the past were driven either by a strong sense of competition from other countries, mm-hmm. in the case of Semitech, mm-hmm. or driven by a sense that it's expensive to do the research alone, so we should work together. But they weren't driven by the sense that doing the research at the corporate level will lead to worse outcomes than if you do it in concert with academics, early adopters, government users, government funders. Mm -hmm. In other words, the idea that I'm trying to expand upon is the idea that a consortium provides a community foundation. Right. And that that community helps to find the mores of the field and the mores of the technology as applied. I see. And, and the idea here, especially in terms of including government actors as part of this consortium, is to include effectively public representation. Is that right? Well, in a representative democracy, it is the purpose, one of the purposes of the government is to represent the people. Mm-hmm. And when you take a consortium that's entirely private sector, you have to ask, well, what is the benefit to the public if it is profit-seeking entities that define what the consortium does and how it does it without any input from those who have enabled it via law? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you bring the government to the table, you have the option to maintain a shaping in which the elected representatives have a role to play in concert with, in cooperation with these other actors. So I guess from my perspective, you know, I I think of various representations of the public Mm -hmm. and particularly in highly technical areas, scientists and program managers that work for the government that report to Congress can be one of the highest leverage points that the public has right. in er- very complex areas. Right. And so in, in these particular cases, you know, we are really specifically talking about incredibly complex, very emergent technologies and very emergent science fields, right? So I'd love to go back. You mentioned something that really, really sparked my curiosity, which is in the consortia that you, uh, cre- that you helped create with quantum computing, you mentioned it was important not just to bring people together to try and bring about successes, but also to mitigate risks. And I'm really curious to hear, maybe leveraging that as the example, what risks did you see that needed this type of structure, this public purpose structure, to find or to mitigate effectively uh, in the quantum computing space? There's actually several, and they're not all obvious. Mm -hmm. So one of the ones which is easier to understand is a risk of premature development. So we saw this actually in the 1990s in the photonics industry, where there was a a big investment made by the private sector to enable direct processing of light 
We use light to communicate using fiber optic cables, for example, mm -hmm. but we don't process using light right now. We process by taking the light, converting it to electrical signal, and then using transistors on the electrical signal. Yep. And so the photonics industry made a huge investment in lasers and in switches and in optical elements, but the market never materialized mm. because in part of the dot-com crash, but also in part because they overinvested. And so that's a scenario where one of the reasons they overinvested is because they were competing with each other. Mm -hmm for a market that didn't exist. I see. And that's a sort of shooting yourself in the foot problem that you can run into. That's a type of risk because all of those companies, or most of them, got sold for pennies on the dollar oh, wow. to many of the United States foreign competitors who now dominate the photonics market. Interesting. Yeah, we put all this investor money mm. into work. We put some government funds into work. And uh, in, from the US perspective, it is now benefiting our adversaries to some extent and our allies and ourselves, but we don't own the supply chain in any way or form. Interesting. Interesting. So that's one. There's just one other one I wanted to mention, which is, sure. which is the workforce. Oh, interesting. Okay. There's a, there's a big risk when you make a new technology that you don't train up people to take that technology and deploy it. Mm -hmm. And that means that you don't end up getting the jobs where you, where you built it. And so that's another thing where individual companies aren't going to make that investment, but together, along with some federal impetus and, and stakeholder engagement, you can enable that much broader workforce. We call it a quantum smart workforce, quantum information science. But more generally, if you don't cooperate on building the workforce, uh, all the technology in the world doesn't mean that you actually own the jobs. Mm -hmm. So those are some examples of risk yeah. that you can try and mitigate. It's incredible to, to see the ways that i mean th these are these are risks that take years to materialize and you have to be thinking super far in advance to build this kind of stuff out when you're thinking about these types of consortia how do you think about sustainability around them or being able to actually maintain them throughout potentially decades of research and building out economies for these types of new emerging fields well that's a great question because Indeed, when you talk about bringing together different actors, you always have to have a value add. There needs to be a reason for people to come to the table. Mm -hmm. And so if you have that 10-year, 20-year horizon for development, the value add is tricky, particularly in the private sector, where you can be driven by shorter-term profit motive. One thing that helps tremendously, and this is something that we did in quantum information science, is to have a legislative mandate, right? So in the National Quantum Initiative Act passed at the end of 2018, Congress calls for a consortium oh. to support quantum information science research and development. So there is a congressional mandate. There is dedicated funding, not a huge amount of dedicated funding, but companies know that the government's going to stay at the table for the next 11 years. Mm -hmm. And so they have the benefit of knowing that if they show up, there will be something there. So that's an example of enabling sustainability, mm -hmm. by essentially by the public representatives may, being clear to the community. Mm -hmm. The other approach is self-sustainment. And that is when you get the first few successful projects done, you build enough goodwill in the community that people come to look to that entity as any, any other platform economy driver does as kind of a, an infrastructure element. And once you've become part of the infrastructure for research and development, you have a sustainable path. So when you are looking at the these companies that are basically starting to come into these consortia, 
obviously you've got these different incentives for them to come in and join. Are there any potential downsides to these organizations being a part of these consortia? Any risks to this? You know, why, oh, why, absolutely. why might they not want to join these sorts of things? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it, you know, when you open up your doors to let others in, they can see things you didn't intend. Mm-hmm. So when you have a, a, an environment for cooperation, part of that environment means that your engineers and, and other technical folks are going to be talking to engineers from competing companies. And that's an opportunity for some of your intellectual capital to accidentally leak. Uh-huh. Of course, in the consortium, you have rules around it, right? That's why you have this protected environment so that you can have those conversations. Right. But companies are always very leery of losing any particular value add that they believe they've got compared to their competitors. Mm-hmm. And then there's also risk in the federal government side because you don't want to circumvent capital markets where you shouldn't, mm-hmm. right? There's a, a tremendous benefit for the type of creative destruction that you can have in the capital markets when you're trying to investigate whether a new market really exists and what the scope of it is. This is one of the reasons that we like using, you know, working with investors effectively, giving them good information, but letting them make their own calls. So in other words, it's hard, it's hard to see the benefit of selecting winners and losers from the government, mm-hmm. right? You want to, you want to be able to select directions that are, we believe are going to be successful and good for the America, good for the citizens, good mm-hmm. for the public. Uh, but we we don't necessarily want to say, well, that company should do it and this company shouldn't, right? Absolutely. And so there's a risk on that side. And I know that that relates to the uh, another problem that you're very interested in, which is, you know, why do these tech projects fail? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that type of risk is something that they that really drives government thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's a, something that also drives a, a participation in these types of consortia. Yeah. And then there's also finally sort of philanthropic organizations, NGOs, and academics. And there the risk is that they're their mission and purpose of intellectual discovery, of scientific discovery, or if they're a philanthropy of their particular mission, get subsumed by the community they've become a part of, mm-hmm. that they get shaped by it in a way that ends up compromising or sacrificing the freedom they started with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's a concern that we see uh, on all sides. So every everyone who enters into these types of agreements, you know, it's a new thing and it can be a somewhat risky. Right. It's such an interesting tension between, as an organization, as a company, trying to make sure that I am mitigating risk by understanding what the field, where the field is going, especially in these incredibly emergent fields, um, but also not wanting to overshare because I have my own intellectual property that I'm trying to build. Meanwhile, the public is trying to pull uh, you know, where it can to ensure that the public purpose aspect of these technologies is taken into account so that we don't accidentally build something that is harmful to society. And instead, we actually build something that solves societal problems, not just, you know, creates a market, but actually helps people. Um, I can see that there's a lot of different pulls in this sort of environment. Uh, One of the key things that I assess in building a consortium to enable technology of the public purpose Mm -hmm. is getting the community right and getting the governance right. Because at the end of the day, if those two pieces aren't in place, you're setting yourself up for a failure of sorts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So with that with that particular piece in mind of getting the community right in particular, um, how does how do these consortia uh, actually engage the public 
themselves as they go through their research or their development. So not public representatives uh, in the case of you know government employees or government representatives, but directly the public. Is that a part of this formalized structure or is this something that they do informally and, and on their own? Well, I would say that the public engagement is a key part, mm-hmm. but different consortia are likely to approach it in different ways. Okay. So, and a lot of it has to do with the particular technology. What I think about in the framework that I'm putting together and the work I'm doing is that there are going to be the early adopters who are going to provide very helpful and useful feedback to consortium members, mm-hmm. both in terms of market scoping and also in terms of things that are going right and things that are going wrong. And so those are the folks that already, for example, in the Quantum Economic Development Consortium actually have joined as consortium members. I see. So that they can be participate in the various technical groups that meet mm-hmm. and provide that feedback. And then uh, another area is this is where the government can play a role. The government, of course, has this opportunity, something that we exercised uh, quite a lot, setting up various parts of the National Quantum Initiative which is to do requests for information and to do meetings that are open to the public. Right. And so when you do these requests for information and, and federal register notices about meetings, it's, it's important not only that you do the thing, but also that you invite people mm-hmm. that you tell them that you're looking for their feedback. Yeah. So those are some formal mechanisms, which are very open mm-hmm. and are, it can be a powerful way for citizens to get their voice heard. Another point that we see in some of these is that the consortia explicitly because of the workforce troubles that many emerging tech run into have a a very focused, externally focused portion of what they do. So they are trying to communicate to the public to create educational tools for the public and to be an interface for the public around that technology. Right. Which means if it's done correctly, that the consortium directions are shaped by the public response to these effects and these attempts. That immediately brings to mind uh, one of our other fellow fellows, Devin Gladden, who is working on autonomous vehicles. I don't know if there is a consortia on autonomous vehicles, but his exact research is on, you know, public perception, public thoughts, and, and, you know, what that how that might affect the market itself. And I can absolutely see that some consortia might not have that as an effect because the technology or the science that they're working on just doesn't need it. But something like that would absolutely benefit greatly from you know both the workforce angle and the, just the, the general consumer angle as well. Yeah, and, and the thing that's nice about the consortium part there, so the government can play one role through, mm-hmm. for example, in the case of autonomous vehicles, right? You have regulation on Department of Transportation and the F- and uh, the air traffic control systems. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, right, there's federal regulations and regulation making processes, which the government can go through. But at the same time, there is the industry question, which is what is the public perception of the industry and how should the industry respond to the public set of concerns, which is a parallel thread. Mm-hmm. And there's also a third thread I want to highlight, which is not just the industry part, but also the, the academic part. Right, which is what is the philosophical, you know, philosophical basis for an autonomous vehicle decision tree? Right, and right. what is what is explainable in decision trees when you use machine learning systems to do visual identification of objects, mm-hmm. or 
to make choices. This is the problem. We have imperfect inputs. Yeah, this is the problem of do you run over one person or swerve to hit two or something along those lines. And more to the point, you're doing it with blurry glasses on, so you don't yeah. actually know if it's one or two. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what's the decision process for deciding how yeah. blurry your glasses are and what's acceptable, right? Yeah. So so the point is that it's a, it's a pretty complex problem. One of the things I appreciated uh, some of our early conversations in the TAP project mm -hmm. with Secretary Carter is a point that he raised that others have raised as well, which is that technology doesn't just happen. Mm -hmm. It's many people working very hard to have it occur. Right. And so when I think about a public purpose consortium, it's building a community around those many people and ensuring that that community is inclusive of the public in these different ways. Mm -hmm. I think that is a phenomenal note for us to pause on and go into our break, but there's so many more questions that I want to uh, throw your way when we come back. So we're just gonna take a quick break right now and then we'll come back for our second segment. Sounds great. finding yourself interested in Jake's work, be sure to follow him on Twitter at quantum underscore Jake. You can also visit his website, quantumjake.org. jump back into it. Uh, excited to continue the conversation on the idea behind public purpose consortium. And uh, in particular, I want to zoom out a little bit because we've been talking a lot about the particular idea of the public purpose consortia and how companies and government and, and you know, varying different interests can work together. But I want to zoom out to this balance that you actually really highlighted for me, one that I hadn't really considered before you brought it up, which is the intersection of the science community and the technology community. And how do you view the difference between, let's, let's start maybe with the difference. So how do you view the differences between the science community and the technology community as someone who is sort of floated between the two? So there's this thesis of how technology is developed, which really dates back in formalization to Vannevar Bush back in the 1940s during World War II. And the idea in his Endless Frontier work was that science opened up new doors. And when you could see a new open door, then engineers, innovators, entrepreneurs could pursue that and develop it from an application of that science to the human condition, which is a technology. And then that technology through capital markets would lead to, lead to economic growth and would explode or expand into a space. And once you got to that point, then you could start asking the questions of, okay, is it too much? Mm -hmm. you know, was this a good idea or a bad idea? So there's this idea in his thesis and much of which underlies our current approach to innovation, 
which is that you want to let the garden run rampant for a while before you start calling things down. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the beginning parts of that process, the scientific exploration followed by the technological development, you actually have quite different motives for those who are zooming in on the questions of what we don't know, which is what science is really about. Mm -hmm. And those zooming in on the questions of how we can apply what we do know to improving humanity. Mm -hmm. So there's often some philosophical divides and divides of language, mm -hmm. of assumptions. We hear about the ivory tower, uh, academics who don't really care about the real world. Right. And that can often be said as a negative, but it's also in some sense a positive because the whole point of doing science is you don't know the answer. And I you see. listen to the real world to find the answer. Right. So you're not ignoring it, but you are ignoring the idea that it's already a solved problem. So in, in this particular balancing act, then you're taking a look at science as being the exploration of the unknown technology. And you had this, this quote that you mentioned before, technology is science applied to the human life in a positive way. So it's, it's finding these things that we've learned, such as all the various different developments in physics and manufacturing that have enabled us to have computers. Um, and then it's, it's the technology being built out from the science that we've learned. One of the things that I'm really interested in hearing from you is have these two communities drifted apart from each other in a way that is uh, detrimental to the development of both. Because when I think of science and technology communities, you know, just as much as you said the ivory tower in reference to the science community, I thought Silicon Valley in reference to the technology community. And by and large, even though there's a lot of people that shift between the two, um, there are incredibly different ethos. It's incredibly different uh, philosophies and, and, and driving forces. Is that something that you see as well? Or do you see a different side of that coin? So I, I do see substantially different pressures when you identify or self-identify into one of these two different communities. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's interesting is that this has been recognized for a very long time. In fact, there's a substantial portion of federal government funding and the structure of the, the United States intellectual property laws, which really encourage members of the scientific community to get involved in the development of the technology. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, we have a structure that's been imposed sort of from above to try and bridge that gap. But what you don't have in that is the incentive structure that supports it. So you have legal agreements that make it the way it should be, but you don't actually incentivize scientists to think in terms of how a technology can possibly benefit society. And you also don't really have a strong impetus on the profit motive side, on the sort of entrepreneur and investor side, mm -hmm. to think about what you didn't think about on the science front, the new science that could continue to upend your market. Because honestly, it's really hard work to take something to market. Right, right. And to take something to market means almost monomaniacal dedication to your concept uh, without a lot of distraction enabled. Mm -hmm. Whereas in science, if you're not reassessing what you're doing every six months, you know, in my research group, for example, we've come up with like a one year long project plan mm -hmm. and we reassess and entirely reevaluate our projects at least every six months. So you have a goal, like in one year I'm going to achieve this. And six months later, if you're doing science correctly, you have learned so much 
that your goal is no longer the right goal. Right. Whereas in, in the technological space, if the science is settled enough, you should be able to make that engineering goal. And then the question of whether you're hitting your targets has to do with whether you're using your resources effectively, not whether it's possible. Well, so that's interesting to, to hear from you because as someone who, you know, lived and worked in, in the Valley, as it were, um, my view would be like, oh, sick, you only review your uh, uh, end goal every six months. That seems like a very long period of time, given that a lot of these startups don't even last for six months in some situations because they, you know, spin up, try an idea, the idea fizzles out and then they just cease to exist. But the idea of pivoting your business um, rapidly is very much so part and parcel with maybe not necessarily with technology, but with the tech entrepreneurship aspect. Do you think that the, it's a, it's an effective parallel in this sense, or is it just sort of like, because science is answering unknown questions, whereas technology is in the way that we think about, you know, the tech uh, economy and the tech sector is finding untapped markets? You know, that's, that is a good question. And I do think that there is a, a strong parallel in finding new markets and in exploring basic science questions like the, the uh, approach management approach that you take, mm-hmm. which I, I do appreciate you bringing up. But in terms of the art of possible, uh, I think they do differ somewhat substantially. Mm-hmm. Again, because it's not whether or not you can build the software app, it's whether or not there's a market for it, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the technology is almost always, well, in many cases, it is very obviously possible. It's a database, it's a three-tiered app, that sort of thing. In some cases, though, we do see where the intersection is much more tightly bound, right? So in particular, I'm thinking of things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Is that somewhere where you see that the two sides of science and technology are much more closely integrated? Or is that still something that you know is maybe separated in a way that I just can't see? Actually, that's a very interesting example. And it's one of the ones I bring up in my public purpose consortium framework. Mm-hmm. So artificial intelligence is a good example of what I call emerging technology. And emerging technology means different things to different people. But to me, it means doing technological development and exploration in an area where there's a lot of unsettled science, where the art of the possible is not that well understood. Right. So there's actually a famous quote about science fiction, which I really like in this context, right? So, you know, good science fiction doesn't predict the car, it predicts the traffic jam. Hmm. So when you're talking about emerging technology, yeah. it's not the product, it's it's the consequences of the product that you don't have enough scientific knowledge to be able to get to. Right. right. And And so that's a really interesting intersection. Now, in AI... I do think that these communities are not as tightly integrated as they might want to be. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a very interesting dynamic where most of the cutting edge research in artificial intelligence, well, in machine learning, really, mm-hmm. uh, general AI is a, a different topic, is happening at the large tech companies, right? somewhat as vanity projects, uh, somewhat as marquee project ways for them to recruit talent, mm-hmm. uh, but also because companies see a value add on their business horizon right. from that basic research. And so when I think about having a community that works in that space, I think there is a real benefit. Uh, now, the industry did try to put together a consortium called the OpenAI Consortium, mm-hmm. 
Uh, but that thing kind of imploded really? in the sense, in the sense that it's no longer a not-for-profit. It's now a for-profit organization. Uh, it's had a lot of trouble with sharing its results, oh. in part because of those choices. So it started out as this idea of open AI, literally in the name, yep. and now it's quite something different. But what it didn't have, it only was industry. It didn't have academia, it didn't have uh, government, it didn't have this sort of external set of stakeholders that make a community. This is the thing that you were exactly mentioning of, you know, for it to be a public purpose consortia, it really does need to include other members of the community. It, it also really brings to mind, again, one of our colleagues, Liz, um, her, her research and project on venture capital and the way that we fund these types of endeavors and the way that we are, and certainly she can speak to this much better than either of us can, but the way that we are incentivizing these businesses um, to take into account, or in some cases to not take into account the public purpose. As you see places where science and technology are coming closer and closer together, along with technology, I see entrepreneurship coming into play, right? So that's the sort of the three tiers, science, technology, and then entrepreneurship. And, and I fear that anytime you get those two too close together, you end up having that profit motive swallow all the other motives and incentives. Is that something, is that a pattern that you've seen repeat itself, not just with this OpenAI consortium, but in other places as well? You know, it's interesting. When you talk about that as a pattern, what I see is actually a shift of who is involved. Mm -hmm. So it's, I've, it's very rare that you see someone who's driven by scientific exploration entirely pivot to profit motive. They will be swayed by profit motive where the science is equally interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, it's also very rare that you see someone who's driven by profit motive be swayed by new technological development if they don't see how the profit connects. Mm -hmm. So I think the motivation is that the people of individuals doesn't change all that much, but I do think that where new people enter the field is largely determined by where they see the opportunity. And so as a field grows, you, you can get pretty strong evolution in one direction or the other, because that's where the opportunities are. I see. So I, I guess for me, it's, it's not so much the established actors in the field, but it is rather uh, as new people join, where they go, where they put their feet. Right. So as all of these areas grow, the scientific community, the tech community, um, the ideally the use of these consortia, um, the role of the scientific community in particular in shaping the way that this technology is actually used, right? Because the science has to be built before the technology can be built. And the incentives can trickle down in a sort of way. So what is the role in this particular case of the scientific community in ensuring that public purpose is is built into the technology that gets built from their science? It's actually, it's a pretty challenging question because not every scientist is going to agree what the role should be. Mm -hmm. What yeah. I will say is the scientists who are actively producing new outcomes and, and new ideas are going to be listened to by those implementing the technology because they're going to want to know, oh, is there some technological change or scientific change that I need to add to my mm -hmm. repertoire or look into in my business model? And so they have a voice. Whether they choose to use that voice or not is an individual choice, one that we can encourage. But 
I want to be clear that the motivation for scientific exploration is not equivalent to the motivation of public good. But there are strong overlaps. And I would say that in some scenarios, those overlaps are very positive and can be encouraged mm -hmm. in part by having scientists be involved in the technology development, but also ensuring that the scientific exploration reflects what we've learned as we develop the technology. I like to think of a kind of a shortcut in the technological development so that before it becomes a widely deployed technology, it goes back to the scientists for them to use in their work and then they learn from it and discover a whole new set of problems that we didn't think about. Right. In this type of structure where you have the scientists and the technology uh, development and you want quick feedback, is that something that this consortia model is specifically geared to provide? Or is this something that is specific just to the scientist aspect? Because when I think of, you know, I'm thinking of the, the, uh, the entire chain, again, scientists to technologists, to entrepreneurs, to markets, how many of those elements actually get involved in the consortia that you have in mind? So it actually does depend upon the technological area that the consortium might focus upon. However, in the ones that I'm thinking about, it is really meant to connect the technology back to the scientific community as quickly okay. as you can. And at the same time, it also does accelerate the technology development, mm -hmm. in part because you have a broader market for the underlying infrastructure that you need, and in part because you can learn from each other's mistakes more effectively. Right. So I guess, you know, when I think about the areas I'm zoomed in on, which is machine learning and artificial intelligence, carbon technologies for mitigating climate change, and bioengineering, these are all areas where there's going to be a pretty deep interplay between these different sub-communities. And so just having a shared space and a shared community seems to me to be essential. Right. So when you think about this interplay, is there anyone that you can think of that's doing this right, right now? It's actually a great question because it's rare that you get to see this from the perspective of what's going right. You more often are able to identify when it's going wrong. Right, yeah. So... As an example, where it seems to be going right is in vaccine development, oh. where we've seen some great successes recently in the news for mm. vaccine development for COVID. But that actually builds upon you know more than 10 years of a strong effort to build a vaccine development community, uh, led in part by DARPA in the United States mm. and by other agencies across the world. And it's been interesting because we have this established community around vaccine development, which is profit motive actors, but also folks at the National Institutes of Health and the CDC, the scientists working at universities and NGOs and nonprofits who are interested in how you deploy those vaccines, for example, into the third world. And there's been a, a big community built around it, which has been leveraged in the fight against COVID-19, mm -hmm. but it's a great example of a success where this community has a, a shared purpose vaccines that are good for the public, right. has had to fight against other troubles, non-anti-vaxxers, uh, right, mm -hmm. who, who believe that vaccines are, are bad for humanity, right. uh, who have had to, to handle fractures in the community because of different agreements or ideas about what a good vaccine is or isn't, right. of uh, competitive pressure between different uh, biotech firms. Um, nonetheless, they're, uh, they're aligned in the overall mission. 
which is that vaccines are good for humanity and we need better ones. Mm-hmm. And that along with the strong connection to the public sector through government funding and support of very non-traditional vaccine approaches, which are now being used in, in two of the vaccines, for example, mm-hmm. you start to see the successes of that 10 year long effort. I see. An example to follow. Uh, Jake, it has been so great to be able to sit down and chat with you more in depth. Um, I want to just give you an opportunity. Are there any final thoughts or other things that you want to leave the listeners with? Well, first, I want to say thank you, Mark, for having this discussion and for getting my pleasure us together to talk about these issues and, and the like. I think for those listening, I'm just going to encourage you to think about what are the problems that you see science helping to address over the next 20 years and ask yourself, are any of these problems that I should be working on? Mm-hmm. There's a, a famous a famous quote from a Bell Laboratory researcher who would go into the lunchroom and ask people, what's the most important problem in your field? And then he'd ask them, and what are you working on? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Yeah. So no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> but we live, we live in times where change is possible, and I encourage those who can to do. Well, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Jake. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Thanks for listening.